oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Politics can be oversimplified as the ideations which influence management and administration through a government entity. This succinct definition seems right when we consider how politics influences government to provide services, infrastructure, tax revenue, and the like. However, it is a bit uncomfortable when we consider politics as responsible for managing and administering life and death. The idea seems macabre and incongruous. But for most of human history, there was no need for such a role. The pregnant gave birth, the elderly died, and little could be done to combat the violence life visited upon us through warfare, accident, or disease. The rise of modern advances in science, particularly medicine, has ushered in an age where life and death are something to be managed and administered. Today, we're discussing biopolitics. So this is, this is going to be a difficult but important episode, and I'm sure there are going to be people um, that are going to strongly disagree with, with some things that we say and strongly agree with them. Probably. So, you know, of course, we'll try to remain as objective as possible, but sometimes being objective isn't necessarily um, the same as taking a position that people might consider neutral. No, um, no. So we'll go through it. I think we'll start with what is biopolitics? Well, biopolitics was an idea developed by a, a philosopher we have talked about or ref- alluded to sometimes. Not entirely talked about, I think, uh, uh, Michel Foucault, who affected in the mid-20th century uh, into the last third of the, of the 20th century all kinds of fields from criminal justice uh, all the way into neuro, neuroscience. He was that kind of philosopher. And one of the things he talked about was biopolitics. And and he says this refers to the humanitarian values that deal with the political relations between the administration or regulation of the life of species and the locality's populations. So it's about where politics intersects, part of it is about where politics intersects with what we would now call um, echo studies, the environment, climate. Hmm. Uh, part of it is about what do governments do and what do, what do collectives of people do uh, to administrate and maintain ideas of their own health. And then where that gets even more complicated than it already sounds is a thing called necropolitics, which uh, is discussed brilliantly. It's essentially been put forward by first uh, a French philosopher named uh, Franz Fanon, and then uh, a gentleman from Cameroon named Achille Mbi. Mbi. Uh, who's written now three books, um, kind of sort of a trilogy of philosophy for surviving this century. Uh, a hopeful set of books. So, you know, we, we can still make ourselves better because for, necropolitics is the opposite side of the coin of biopolitics. So necropolitics is how uh, governments, uh, societies uh, make decisions in their own, uh, for their own benefit, knowing full well that it's going to cast other populations into great distress, and even to a point which, which he calls the Walking Dead. So I think it's it would be hard. Somebody who doesn't want to hear this necessarily, but it, but it would be hard to push back much against the idea that decisions by populations affect climate. Decisions by populations affect other populations hmm. we don't like to think of that much and that and a lot of that on the on the probably ground level hasn't been considered a whole lot other than by indigenous populations but and so that's where it starts yeah yeah and so you know we don't want to d- diminish anybody's contributions but i i will i'll probably use the term biopolitics just for simplicity's sake sure. to talk about the whole thing sure but 
um, necropolitics is is a, a big part of it. Like you said, it's it's the other side of that that coin. Um, yeah, I'm reading a book right now. It's very interesting, called uh, Power Trip, hmm. and um, it's it's about essentially the history of energy oh. and energy in all of its forms. Right, going back, you know, they talk about water. You know how water has been used throughout history to as a source of energy. How food is a source of energy, how wealth is a source of energy, electricity, these, all of these different concepts, really fascinating book, you know, that just goes through how the history of how these things develop and how they contribute to human society. And it gives you this really keen insight into how we're affecting the environment and how our use of resources has impacted the development of the species. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge part of biopolitics that we'll be discussing today. Yes. Um, so, is there a history of biopolitics before modern times? Had, had philosophers considered this before Michel? Not as such. I mean, there's there's political philosophy that goes way back, and of course, Plato talks about the responsibilities of the state and citizens, and and people all the way up through, like the last week we we're talking about Rousseau, um, and, but they weren't talking about the idea of life itself in the same ways that we are conceiving of it now. Do you think that is because of <clears throat> modern advances in medicine? I do. Like I said in the Are intro, we? you know, because I, you, you look at like the historical statistics, right? And you say, okay, the, the average life expectancy was, was to age 40 or 50 until about a hundred years ago. I mean, and if you think about it, that's really recently yes. in history. So, you know, it, and of course, a lot of that's taken into account infant mortality, childhood illness. If you were able to survive childhood, um, you generally had a, a pretty decent long life into your late 60s or 80s. Yeah, with the 60s, 70s, 80s is not, was not uncommon in much of history. But mm -hmm. in the overall view, there was a lot of loss. And so, you know, in that way, it was, it, it was more sort of philosophers didn't consider it much because nature just kind of took its course. You know, you didn't really have much. I, it fascinates me today. I think about it a lot. Um, you know, just as uh, for a simple example, a guy at my work who's a couple years younger than me um, had a hernia and had to have surgery. Hmm. And it was a, it was a, a, a very bad hernia. They, and, you know, the, the doctor said, you know, that he had to have it fixed right away or, you know, it his trouble. In very bad shape. Right? Yeah. So he had the surgery and then, um, you know, he couldn't lift anything for like two weeks. And then after that was completely fine. And I thought, imagine if that same injury had occurred 200 years ago, right? It, like, at the, at, yeah, at the age of 20, you know, you're 26 or 27, whatever, you'd be dead, you know, yeah. something that simple. And, you know, now two weeks after it happened, you don't even think, you don't even think about it. It doesn't occur to you. Yep. And there's a lot of things like that that occur. You think about, you know, your appendicitis or your appendectomies or, and those are big things, but even down to fevers and ear infections and, and simple things that we just don't even really consider nowadays are things that killed people before, right. you know, and, and right. that was and just it's part of transparent, life. You know, transparent, isn't it? And this is, oh, so you take this, the prefix bio and you put it to pretty much anything in philosophical terms, and you know you're talking about enlightenment or post-enlightenment for the past few hundred years. Um, so yeah, because we, we just assume this, but this is why what the difficulty that both uh, Mem Membi and, and Foucault and Fanon were talking about is that you're, you're in a situation, we're in a situation in which when there's a development for just medicine as one example, since we're on the topic, there's a development, people all want to have access to it. But everybody's not going to have access to it. That depends on all kinds of complications, such as insurance and and all the, the attempts that people have tried to voice about simplifying insurance, and there's a lot of pushback about that. But yeah, people want what's there. At the same time, that a lot of people know that they're not going to have access to it if they don't have the means. So that's where the biopolitics comes in in yet a, another way, in the sense of a, a society uh, regulating itself in one way or another 
uh, putting its imperatives, it's uh, what's important to it. Um, but it's not about equitability. Mm. It's, I think it rec- it, there's a recognition built into it that it's, it's not that way. And, and, and capitalism certainly isn't going to do that. But I'm not just going to bash on capitalism. There's really no system that we know of functionally in our current time um, in a large nation state that that does a grand job of that. Now, I'm not trying to be relativistic because there are different levels, but pretty much there's not an equal distribution of resources anywhere on the planet. Yeah, yeah. So um, what are some biopolitical, uh, biopolitical issues surrounding birth? Well, biopolitical issues surrounding birth would be what kind of, what kind of care should the person giving birth receive? Uh, are there systems in place that will ascertain and, and, and um, make certain that that mothers have a reasonable chance of having healthy delivery. And we know in, in our country, we have one of the highest uh, maternal death rates of a child, uh, which is almost inexplicable to people, except biopolitics would say, well, it is explicable because, or the opposite side of the coin, necropolitics would, because clearly you're not uh, equalizing the concern for all populations. And so some get very little, some get a lot. It's what we've talked about with education. And but this turns into being a, a mortal issue for a mother or a baby. But you can also look at it at, at, at the same time as you're just talking about your, your colleague. Um perhaps has the kind of insurance that would have helped, has access to the doctors who would do it immediately. If we were living in a really remote place and, and not part of a great big medical system, that might have gone differently. And so bio, biopolitics gets into the conversation about what do we accept as good enough and where are, are our priorities? Yeah, and this is... um. I was uh, listening to an interesting interview this week um, with a guy talking about scientists, right? And he was saying, you know, what a lot of people don't think about is that scientist is done by, or science is done by scientists, right? So, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, scientists are more like children than the rest of the population. They're more curious and they're more, you know, inquisitive and stuff, but they also... Are, can be very prideful and they can be very self-absorbed in some of these other things. And so, um, you know, it's, they're, they're people, right? They have, they have flaws, right? And when you think about that and, you know, you, all of a sudden you realize, okay, well, we have, you know, even if we had standardized programs, right? So he, here are the, we have requirements. Here's what's required to be a doctor, whether it's a medical doctor or whatever. Um, so these are the requirements, but different schools are going to have different standards of, of training and education, um, which some might be inferior to others. Um, different doctors as individuals may have, you know, either superior or substandard qualities in terms of how they are able to. Or treat a very patients. complicated mix. Yeah, yeah. And most importantly, and I think this is an important biopolitic. Oh, why can't I say that word? Biopolitical. Biopolitical issue um, heading into the future that we've talked about is as the U.S. population decreases, right? The decrease of population results in an aging population, which results in a shrinking workforce. So access to medical doctors is going to be restricted pretty much across the board. Um, but like the example that you brought up where in remote areas, it, it's going to be much harder to get a doctor, right? If you have somebody who's very qualified and can make a lot of money, chances are they're not going to want to be out in the, you know, the middle of rural Montana where they have access to nothing, right? Yeah. Well, that's going, the competition for these doctors is going to get more and more, you know, strict, right? right. And so the more rural the population you live in, the higher the chances are that you're not going to have access to that same level of medical care 
and you, we might see a decrease in care that the medical system provides yes. as it goes. And it may be that population's choice. And this is where it gets really messy. And this is why some people may be upset. I, I hope not, because I hope, as always, we are having a, a civil, fun discussion. Because even when you're talking about very, very, very serious things, you still enjoy discussing it. It's when you can't discuss it anymore that things get grim. Uh, but there are there are parts of populations. Um, there, the, you know, the rural politics is not always uh, urban politics uh, in terms of how cities decide to to do things, and that's just one factor. And and the other thing we have to remember is we just came out we've come out of probably the largest biopolitical situation that has ever occurred globally. And that certainly was COVID. And so when you when, when biopolitics means the, the intersecting of, uh, uh, of government, um, life and politics, of <clears throat> a mutual relationship between them, and uh, they're incorporated together. And, and when, what's being dis- determined is the priorities for uh, the life of the population. Uh, we, I don't think it's any, it's, it's, not, it's not vile to say this. We messed up badly. Uh, on the scale of, of the resources that we have, there's a huge report that just came out this past week about this. We, we, we lost well over a million people. They were not prioritized because systems had not been maintained and, and, and kept in place, and fresh systems that could deliver help were rejected. And that was a messy but mutual decision uh, among smaller clusters of the population that affected the health of the entire population. And so it was biopolitical in the, the most... Um, I think obvious sense. Yeah. Yeah, this is I, I think this is a good opportunity to ask probably the messiest question, right? Because <laughs> we're talking about the biopolitics of birth and now we've brought COVID into it. And this is a question that I saw asked a lot during that pandemic, right? Yeah. Um usually by people with a right-leaning political view. And it's a it's a legitimate question, right? Which is um my body my choice, right? Mm-hmm. So the argument is that well, people who have left-leaning politics and support abortion policies can say, it's my body, it's my choice to have an abortion. Yeah. Um, and people who are right-leaning will say, it's my body, it's my choice whether or not I get a vaccination, right? Do both of those people have that same right based off of that same argument? Well, they certainly have that right. That's one of the... The grand things about any Western democracy, you have, you know, it's not just the United States where people can say anything that they want to. It's pretty much over Western democracies. We don't have a corner on that market. So, of course, they have the right. Uh, it's, a, it's a matter of thinking through the uh, ramifications of that asserted choice. This is a, a great example of applied philosophy, right? And People having to use critical thinking in order to go through their position. Exactly so. So I'll, I'll stumble all over this, but in we go. You have a, if, if you have the right of choice and you assert that in all instances you have the right of choice, nobody on the right and some on the left wouldn't agree with that. Hmm. Uh, because when people assert that they have the right to tell you what to do with your body, and it's about their own life choices that have no effect on the rest of the population, that is fundamentally different than making a choice that could have a very deleterious effect on the population. Yeah, so this is this is essentially uh, this is kind of utilitarianism, mm-hmm. sort of in in this mm-hmm. way, right? Mm-hmm. So with with the COVID vaccines, kind of thing, where 
And of course, this is another thing that got that gets brought up a lot, right? Well, first they were saying this, now they're saying this, now they're saying this. And there was a good reason for that. It's because we had never seen a, a virus on this scale. Like Manifesting this, right? as it was. So there's a high degree of what we've discussed in the past, verisimilitude, right? And the process of science, right? Science is not right. rock solid facts. It's the process of obtaining knowledge, right? So early on, um, there was no knowledge. And so we're operating off the best things that we had based off of previous models, based off of early data. Um, and then as the pandemic went on, the information got better and better um, until now we, we have a pretty good idea of what what was going on. And in the, as a matter of fact, there might even be a virus for all coronaviruses at some point. And a lot of good scientific advancements have come out. Sure. But no, like you're saying, there's and there's a lot of reports now with the information we have that says, well, you know what, if everybody had followed the advice that was given at the time, like you said, we we would have saved. Everyone wouldn't have been saved. Right, right. But, but there would have been less loss of life. Right. Whereas with an abortion scenario, um, like you said, now, now it's one person with their body. Now, with a right-leaning stance, what you're saying is that the child is also a person and that that person is losing their life. And now if you extrapolate that to a large scale, you are still losing a lot of people. But none of the individual's actions influence the other individual's actions in the ecosystem necessarily. Yes. You're looking into a future sense. Also, you, you have to have strenuous debate about what the word child means because the child is somebody who has emerged. Right. It's extremely it's, philosophical. Yeah, right. right. So, so all of that's packed in there. And, 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 and we're not here to try to solve that debate, but the, but the point is that you have these discussions wherein you try to, uh, you try to define and you try to think, listen to this Foucault uh, quotation. It's from, it's from one of his many books. It was called Madness and Civilization. People know what they do. Now, you could challenge this, mental health issues and so on, but people know what they do. Frequently, they know why they do what they do. I might challenge that. <laughs> people know what they do. Frequently, they know why they do what they do. But what they don't know is what what they do does. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I like Foucault. <laughs> yes. No, that's great. And and this is this is something that we talk about all the time. And especially when we're discussing consciousness um and you know and the ghost and the machine and these sorts of things, right? Is that we have this illusion, right, that we are in complete control. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but then all the time we're doing things and especially in in the United States, right? What's what's probably the biggest epidemic in the United States? Stress, right? <laughs> and so the stress response, and you think about how that affects um, every part of your life. You know, oh, all of a sudden my blood pressure is raised. I have this flight or flight response. I, I have, I'm experiencing all of these things that aren't real. You know, then it's it's just a perceived threat. And right? stress itself is a sign of something greater. The Surgeon General just released this week. The overall one of the it's it's as dangerous as the pandemic. Loneliness, mm. which leads to stress, heart disease, uh, isolation. And they're trying to figure out. So, how do we rebuild? conviviality. How do we, we rebuild civility in a time when civility is still be, being severely undermined by, by intensive rhetoric? Uh, it's, it's killing us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not an overstatement. Yeah, and there's other research that's coming out, right? Um, and this is just to demonstrate the complexity of humanity, right? That um, not all solitude is loneliness, right? Right. They, because when this, I think we talked about in our episode on, on um, aging, right, where, you know, everybody's concerned. We have this view of old people as being almost like children, right, that we need to take, take care of. And, and the number one thing is, well, they can't be lonely, right? We have to have people for them and stuff. But what they found is in many cases, a lot of older people preferred solitude and they were actually able to, to organize their thoughts better and have more meaningful time being alone than younger people were. 
And a lot of them found that they didn't have enough time by themselves. Um, and of course, that's, you know, this is a study examining a lot of people. That's what the trends indicate. But on an individual level, it's going to vary from person to person. Of course. Right? I'm somebody who, who loves solitude, right? I, I prefer to be by myself the majority of the time. Um, but I know plenty of other people that are the polar opposite, right? So there is no, you know, just blanket statements we can make about any, any person like that. But um, getting back to, to bio, biopolitics, yeah. what are some biopolitical issues surrounding identity? Well, biopolitics itself, when you think about it on a societal level, and, the, and this is what Membi talks about. This is where it goes really grim very easily. When biopolitics becomes a, an urge to preserve the life of people who are like you, visibly or by, by immigrational heritage or whatever it happens to be, such that you're willing to excise and dehumanize other populations as long as you are preserved. And so for identity, is it central to biopolitics if you and, and then but then you if you uh, the trouble there's so many problems with nation states nationalism is an idea that is like loneliness killing the planet so i don't people don't like that either but <laughs> so so the identity when you when you construct an identity for a group of people that doesn't emerge out of of lasting appreciation of the diversity of people and the characteristics they bring to the enterprise. And you construct a story that uh, everyone is supposed to be loyal to. And if everybody isn't, then they're on the outside. And you start building more borders and you start making uh, and, and dehumanizing people who are trying to... Uh, come to a place just because, for the same reason that your ancestors might have. And and when you forget that your ancestors were part of a, a genocidal campaign in one way or another on the very continent and all those kinds of things, and, and I know that that will set people off too, but it's our history. It's what, what collectively we did from the start. We did remarkable things too. We had remarkable ideas. We built remarkable structures. But if we don't come to terms with that, it, it's it's like ignoring an illness that you have. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just our history, it's our future as well. Um, yeah. You know, I've, the National Geographic issue I was reading recently was about populations and um, it's both a decline and an increase, you know, across the globe because every country is facing a different scenario, right? Um, and the thing that they were saying, um, you know, they, they presented two countries and, uh, you know, it was, I want to say it was Nigeria and China you know, are in opposite boats, right? With China, the population is shrinking and they said all the factors that went along with that. And then I don't, I think it was Uganda. I, I'm, I really am sorry for not getting the country right. But um, one of these countries had an in rapidly increasing population and they talked about all of the, the pros and cons that go along with that. Yeah. They said the thing that's interesting about the United States population, right, is that the United States population has technically been in decline since the 70s because the birth rate has not exceeded 2.1 births per woman. But, but due to immigration, the United States population is likely to continue to grow until at least 2053 due to immigration, right? And so if we set up policies that continue to be um, Wasps, wasp centric, right? right. White Anglo Saxon uh, Protestant. Right. Um, it's not manageable. It's not tenable. Right. Because, uh, you know, very shortly, white people will not be a majority or, or you know, even a, because of immigration, right? And so if you set up policies that are geared towards this and you continue to alienate and put people in bad biopolitical positions, who are going to be the majority of the country, you're setting yourself up for failure, right? Like we talked about with, with, right. the, with the birth issue. Um, a lot of immigrants, we've, they found, and not even immigrants, but, but just pe black people or, you know, um, Hispanic people live in areas that don't have access to those high quality doctors. They don't have access to right. healthy food. They don't have access. They live in these areas that, that put them at a disadvantage. And that, 
by extension, lowers their lifespan, right? And decreases their opportunity. It is a necropolitical. It is a necropolitical thing that arises out of biopolitical imperatives. And what you've just hit on is terribly important. I mean, we're just all over the dynamite <laughs> box today, but, but it's because this, this is one of the reasons I want to talk about it because it's a fascinating, um, lucid, intelligent, complex thing that we need to come to terms with. If you privilege uh, an imaginary heritage, and by imaginary heritage, I mean it wasn't so very long ago that people from Ireland were treated the same way as people are at our southern border. Oh, well, people from China, well, we can build railroads with that slave labor essentially, but but can't treat them equally. No, and oh, or if you were from, name the place. Yeah, yeah. The street that I live on right now had back in you know 150 years ago had a Polish bar across the street from an Italian bar, a Polish church across the street from an Italian church because these people would not interact. Two white people, right? I remember when I was 18, I went to Serbia, right, and I remember walking down the street. And, um, you know, the people that I were with, that I was staying with said that, you know, they're like, the Serbians and the, the Hungarians, they hate each other. Mm -hmm. And I go, what do you mean? They're like, well, you see over here, there's, you see how only tall blonde people are walking on this side of the street and only shorter, dark haired people are walking on this side of the street. I said, those are Serbians and Hungarians. And you go, well, these people don't, these people don't, they're, they're both white people, right? So they don't look that much different. That's how imaginary it is, right? It's because that's just the color of your skin. Right. Much less any other defining feature. So if you take that and you roll with it, though, and you say, no, this is how we determine who we are, it isn't tenable. It's going to go away. We know it's going away, no matter how many, <laughs> no matter what kind of nationalism, Christian nationalism or white supremacy, it's, it's going away. And so if you look at it at a national level, like we just were, right? So if the white population of the United States is shrinking and the immigrant populations are growing, mm -hmm. but certain political views focus on advantaging white populations and continuing to disadvantage um, any non-white populations, mm -hmm. essentially what you're doing is bankrupting the future of the nation. Yes. Because in the grand scheme of things, we're all on the same team. Now, if you extrapolate that to the planet, it's the same scenario, it's right? Same We're scenario. all humans on the same planet trying to survive. That's what that's what Ashila Membe is is talking about. That's why he he was. On, I, I, I find it fascinating. I've been enjoying reading his work, and I was watching uh, uh, an interview on British television with him, and he's from Cameroon, which is a country central in the large continent of Africa, but close to the west coast, but about middle area. And, 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 and the interviewer said, so are you, are you just desperately uh, depressed about all of this? We're just, we're done. The planet is done. And he said, no, 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 quite the opposite. We have it in our hands to be able to start thinking about populations on a planetary level. We have enough resources that we could share, and people would have enough water. And and but we have to rethink our entire structures, which is a very difficult thing to do at a very rapid rate of speed. Mm. Uh, but he said no. He said Africa is the as a continent. All of the countries, all of the vastly different countries on the continent of Africa, we were the source. This is where life emerged from, came from. We are still here. We are, we are stairs. This is not a this is not a grim, necessarily posting. Basically, is what he's saying. But it is, as you said, it is a, a global playing field. Well, you use the word global, and as a whole political contingent will say, "Oh, globalist, globalist." Yeah, that's all that's left. It's us and the universe. So <laughs> you know, it's and and when we have the means, look at what, and biopolitics goes all to other things. Water, the source of life. Well, how do you manage water? And 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 do you go as far as saying, no, you can't live in a desert and expect water to be shipped to you when the river, Colorado River isn't is diminishing. 
Oh, we don't go that far. Well, you can live wherever you want. Yeah, but there's going to be a point at which you can't, and, and governments are going to have to say, nope, we cannot, or will we offer any support if you're going to move out into a, a place that doesn't have water? Yeah. That's a biopolitical issue. You have to change rules to, to make sure that the health of the population is maintained. But, but changing rules means also sometimes changing changing our prioritizations on food kinds, food, mm -hmm. food stuff, and all of those other complicated issues. Yeah, that's the interesting, you know, trope that runs through the, the book that I'm reading, Power Trip here, is, um, you know, as he takes, each chapter is, is a, a source of energy, right? Mm. And so you, you have water, you have food, you have, you know, wealth, like I was saying. And then he travels through the history of that concept. And what you see is human history um, essentially is just this continuous progression of finding an energy source, exploiting it, running up against the boundaries of it, and then discovering something new. Um, and so to go back to what, what he was saying in this interview, no, it, you know, just because things look grim right now, it isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessitate a grim outlook. What it necessitates is the view that Hey, listen, this is the history of our species. We, we've always done this and we've always... We know this about ourselves. Right. We've always innovated and we've always found something new and we've always gone on. And, and there are promising technologies out there to, to do such things. Um, but yeah, I think that the important part is you do have to have a global view on it and you have to understand what the situation is before you can address the issue. And you have to rise above, that's what he and before him, Hannon was arguing, you have to rise above, it's like Maslow's hierarchy, you have to rise above the basic level of, of kill or be killed, which is, we've drawn dangerously I'd say close. I'd say well, in some ways we're there. <laughs> Go in the wrong place, drive up a driveway, and you get shot for asking a direction or, or turning around and not even, you know, it's not, that's not happening everywhere all the time, but it's happening more. Yeah, and what's, it's funny because um, this comes into another thing that we, we talked about last week and there's been some research on is um, this the myth of the alpha male, right? Mm. But combined with um, the gossip trap, in the form of social media, right? So we've, this myth has been around for a long time that, that humans are pack animals like wolves and that the, each human has a station, right? There's the aggressive loner that, that is, you know, leads, everybody just sort of falls in line behind and then, you know, it goes down the hierarchy. Um, and so some scientists studied this in people and they said, okay, well, if that's what you'd expect to see, you'd expect to see these dominant, assertive, um, sort of narcissistic people at the top of organizations. They didn't find that at all. What they found is that by and large, the people at the top of organizations are the ones that work best together with other people. The most socially um, you know, conscious people are generally the ones that rise to the top. But you, know, you combine that with what we talked about last week with, with the gossip trap and how the gossip trap has sort of reemerged in the 21st century in, in the form of social media and the, the, the mass, um, you know, the masses way of, of bringing people up and tearing people down based off of qualities that are not necessarily pertinent to what's being done, but just social opinion, right? Right. And so now you start to see characters that do embody the quote unquote alpha male um, rising. properties rising to, rising the, top to the top artificially, you know? Yep. Because if, if some of these courts of public opinion didn't exist, they probably they would probably not wouldn't. have the social capital to get to the places that they're getting. And there was a time not in the so distant past when, yeah, when people would say, ah, that person was going to. Here's a, right on, on the same topic, this is something from Membe. He's re referring to another philosopher, Elias Kanadi. Kanetti. Kanetti uh, reminds us. The survivor is the one who, having stood in the path of death, let's choose our action movie, <laughs> having stood in the path of death, having known many deaths, and having been amid the fallen, is still alive, or more precisely, the survivor is the one who has taken on a whole pack of enemies and managed not only to escape alive, but to kill his attackers. This is why killing is the lowest form of survival. That's an interesting phrase. Kennedy points out that in the logic of survival, each man is the enemy of every other. 
Even more radically, in the logic of survival, the horror experienced upon seeing death turns into the satisfaction that the dead person is another. It is the death of the other. The other, capital O's physical presence as a corpse, makes the survivor feel unique. And each enemy killed makes the survivor feel more secure. It's funny because you and I were talking about this off the air after the podcast last week. Um, I was talking about my basic training experience a little mm. bit and about a, a couple of particular characters, how um, there's phases to basic training. And the first one is red phase, where if one person screws up, everybody gets punished, right? Um, and so what that experience teaches you is that you need to operate as a team. You need to work as a group. Not everybody learns that lesson, period, much less quickly, right? So some people realize right away, oh, we, I need to act good because if I don't, everybody's going to get punished. But other people, other people, they never understand that. And they just think, you know what, I'm going to keep doing what's best for me. And by doing so, they punish the group and alienate themselves. Those people are the alpha males. Yes. The alpha males are those ones that just say, I'm going to do what's best for me, no matter what the situation is. And I'm going to have a stiff upper lip. And I don't care if other people don't like me. This is what I think is best. And, and people at, in a group situation with leadership, people end up hating them. And you can draw your own extrapolations to public figures how that ends up working out. Sure. I mean, we, we have this in pop culture all the time. We 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 have I, you know, I, we talk endlessly about pop culture, and I think it's partly it's fun, and partly it's, it's revelatory. It, it shows us things about ourselves. The Game of Thrones, hmm. uh, one of the most acutely intelligent characters uh, in the Game of Thrones, uh, is a queen who has fallen. Or her, she's in the in the family that's the good family, so to speak. Right, but even she says. Everyone but us is the enemy. And you can, you can see that happening in American culture now. And if that's the case, nothing good is going to happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So what are some biopolitical issues surrounding um, death? Again, we saw some of this in the pandemic, but even just, just in <clears throat> beyond what we've already talked about, When do you allocate fewer resources to the maintenance of the elderly? You know, I was, I was reading something the other day. I said, well, if you make it to 65, you got a 50% chance of getting to 85. Hmm. There's no guarantee of that. It's, it's Dungeons and Dragons dice all the way along. And, and so you don't, you don't sit there and say, oh, whew, I've made it. If you do, you're just kidding yourself. But, right. but, but there was a time when that that little um, gem of wisdom, so to speak, that aphorism would not have existed. But no, it does. So do you put more and more and more medical resources toward the elderly, or do you reduce the medical resources and, and direct them toward the young to make sure that the young are going to thrive? And it doesn't have to be a binary opposition, but it's one of the things that biopolitics must continue. I'm reading a science fiction book right now. My wife just finished reading it, and it's totally engaging. And the and the premise is an alien armada. You never see them. It's just the ships arrive, and in a, a tropish fashion, all the first there's, there's just lights, and they're there, and jets are flying back and forth, and everybody's rattling their sabers. But aliens only use everyone's language through every device that there is says in 30 days uh, if you want to survive you must go to your continent of Antarctica and it's and the rest of the novel is about what happens in the rush to Antarctica and then how culture uh, develops on that continent hmm. decades later and it's set in two the, the event happens in 2023, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea is that the people, uh, all kinds of vessels, the milita military vessels are dedicated to, there's flights dropping millions of boxes of supplies on, on Antarctica. You know, there's very few places to land planes there. We know this. Um, there are some science stations there now, but this isn't a huge population. 
and and people going out of the ships, all kinds of rules. So, an aircraft carrier, but the captain of the aircraft carrier, or, or a ship that size. No, I'm sorry, an oil tanker that's been refurbished. Such rules. Nobody over forty five. Nobody under ten. And like, what? What? We've got all yeah. We, we, we've got all this this body of knowledge and everything. Yes, but you're going to die when you hit that cold anyway. If you're an elderly person, the chances are you're not going to survive very well. Sick people, we already can't take care of them. How are we going to do that? And so, in what seems the novel is called the cold people, but that word cold applies to many things. Uh, kind of a cold logic, if you if you want. And those rules aren't uniform to every single vessel that gets to Antarctica, but it tends to be a very similar kind of rule because there's a cold decision that you, if you want to have a chance and you're only going to have, there's like maybe, I think, a million people who manage to survive and make it to Antarctica. That's the human population, one million from all over the planet. Mm. Um, and I won't give other things away. It's just a fascinating book, but biopolitical. Uh, because of people making command decisions about who has an opportunity to survive and who doesn't. Yeah, and again, it's it's it it takes it strips it of the individuality, right? Yeah. And I always go back to to the army, right? I remember one time there was a, a special forces recruiter showed up and he was trying to recruit me. He looked at, oh man, you got a ninety eight on your ASVAB score, which is you know the kind of the intelligence and the job testing. Oh, you've got a 298 on your, your PT score, the physical test out of 300. Like, have you ever thought about wanting to be an, a ranger? And I said, yeah, I've, I've thought about it. And he's like, so, uh, well, here, what are some more details? And then he found out that I was 28 and he said, oh, well, never mind, you're too old. <laughs> right? And you go, well, wait a minute. If, yeah. if I'm physically and mentally <laughs> capable, what does my age have to do with it? And I have very little doubt that I could still be operating at that level today, right? Um, but that that it's taken out of the equation because of a single factor, the age, right? Yep, yep. Um, and yep. so with the elderly, right, another interesting scenario in the same book that I, or the same National Geographic um, series, they were talking about elderly people and they're saying a funny thing happens, you know, your your chances of surviving decrease every year until you get to 94 or 96, and then it levels off. And so they're trying to determine what the, the maximum age of, of a person is, right? And they say, you know, that your, your chances are even after that. But the problem is that it's dropped so much that it's, it's very, you have a very low chance of making right. it to the next year, but you have the same chance that you had the previous year for the rest of whatever your life whatever may your life be. Is. And like you said, that raises interesting questions, necropolitical questions. And again, it, we can bring back in the my body, my choice thing, because there's also um, a lot of states have rules about assisted suicide, right? Yes, Some people who are, have reached the end of life don't want to live anymore. And some of them don't have the choice to not receive life and extending medical care. That's right. So you know, you have, it, you, there's, this again, there's, there's two sides to that coin where you say some people want to die and they're not allowed to, and some people want to live, but they don't have access to the, the resources. Yes. And, and so how you determine, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not advocating Bernie Sanders in saying this, but he, he put into the mix an alternative model for the United States that is, in fact, used in some other places. And, and not perfectly, but but used that would radically alter medical access on one level, as long as you could get the medical practitioners on another. I I have a future uh, daughter-in-law who I just think of the world of, and is working on becoming a medical doctor, and she cares about people and she's highly intelligent and I it's going to be an incredible doctor but also knows that uh, she could go anywhere because there's such need all around the, this country let alone other places uh, because there aren't enough doctors 
even for the population we have as the population diminishes and as we come we, we become more gerontological and so how do you deal with it that's the bio philosophical biopolitical philosophical set of questions that had to be asked over and over and over again as policies shift and adjust and evolve yeah and and a big part of that biopolitical coin is preventative medicine right and this mm. is this is part of what Michelle Foucault is talking about yep. is you know if we can just provide people with healthy food if we can just encourage people to exercise if we can just get people you know to to sleep on a good schedule by not overworking them and not overstressing them and doing these things then that would that would decrease billions of dollars of medical expenses and some of the need that we have for this palliative and and you know prescriptive it, care it, it in the long certainly run. would it certainly would as would making some things required on insurance that aren't now dental care is enormously hmm. not on insurance care for so many people and we know the medical world has made absolutely clear that dental care is the first chief determinant of longevity mm. but we don't cover it yeah <laughs> so that's a biopolitical decision and so the question has to be asked why isn't it covered why isn't it privileged what happens um in the state in which we live, which I love to live in and which I won't, it's, it's not a perfect state here, but I like it. It has a lot of things. People grouse, but in this state, uh, discussions of a budget, uh, there was a biopolitical decision that, that I find enormously important. And that is uh, for creative arts therapists, um, insurance um is allowed, encouraged to uh, cover certain kinds of creative arts therapy. But because uh, dance movement therapy did not have its own lobbyist to speak for it, it was the one creative arts therapy that got excised from the budget this year. This, this is a therapy I, I know firsthand because my second born is practicing, going into this. Uh, I've seen uh, reports of how it works for people. But because there wasn't a lobbyist to yell loudly enough, even though it's part of creative arts therapy, it isn't covered this year. So there's going to be a lot of push to bring it back. But that was a biopolitical decision. We won't cover this kind of therapy. Why? Well, we got to save money somewhere. Oh, so we'll cover this, this, and this, but not that, because we got to save money. But you're not determining how much help that could be. That's what this stuff is about. Yeah, and that brings us back to an, our another important part of doing philosophy like we do, which is the categorization, right? And this idea that um, just using terms and definitions and, and these sorts of things creates an artificial... Um, sort of air about it a big one right is is being in nature right being in nature reduces people's stress and stuff but you know if how do you how do you you know prescribe that right you have to redevelop your public spaces my my wife works for our, our little local government and they're working on um they've actually been recognized as a uh um a tree-friendly yes. town, right? Yeah. So they're planting trees all over the town. And that's part of it, right? You know, in introducing nature into urban areas and making um, rural uh, areas accessible to people. And and they know that from from scientific studies that just being in nature is good for your health, right? But you try to put that into a political term, it becomes messy. So what is the proper role of government in biopolitical issues to keep engaging its population whether the population wants to be engaged or not <laughs> and that doesn't mean telling the population in all cases what it absolutely must do because that would be antithetical to the idea of conversation but the conversation has to be engaged and it has to be a real one not just a pretend tossing of slogans back and forth that's the job of the government is to be just like Socrates, hmm. a gadfly, 
knit, 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 poking at you, poking at you, because uh, bringing up things you don't want to think about, bringing up things you don't want to hear, because there's a responsibility beyond one's individual family <laughs> or oneself. That, that's back to the idea of utilitarianism. It's back to the idea of there's a relationship. If you go back to nature all by yourself, fine. You can go be a survivalist. You might find others who are, are akin to you, and you'll find your own group. But back to nature in an extreme, like all extremes, probably isn't the best thing for a whole lot of people. Hmm. But being in nature and engaging with it, such as our Autism Nature Trail in Letchworth Park or something like that, absolutely vital. But then we, even with the thing you just described, because I live in the community next door, and and we and because of this community's uh, tree initiative, ours is starting to blossom. To use a bad pun, uh, <laughs> to take root. Anyway, <laughs> and but the pushback, of course, is what you'd expect. People saying, "You can't take my right to take down my own trees. If I don't want trees around my place, then I'll take them down. You can't tell me to keep my trees." Okay, but you can't tell other people whether or not they can do things with their bodies, and you can't tell other people because they aren't you that they can't survive. You know, you 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 can't throw out you can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's back to the Foucault thing. What what does happen because of what you the, the positions you take? So even things on the level of planting a tree become so controversial. Yeah, yeah. And and she's seen that where, you know, they asked everybody. First, they went out and they did an assessment. They tried to identify locations where it would be good to plant trees, where tra please, trees would do some good and trees would thrive. Mm -hmm. Then they sent out letters to all the people that live at those places and said, would you like a tree? And sure enough, some people said no, um, but the majority said yes, right? Um, and by doing that, there's multiple benefits, right? And I think that that is what government is about, right? Just looking, the role of government in biopolitical issues is, is looking at the big picture and then making decisions that, that are the best for the, the society as a whole, right? And so with planting trees, you know, not only are you, you know, making, improving people's mental health by increasing their access to nature in their, in their urban environments, but you're also helping out the planet. They found that if you have trees on the side of the road where many of these trees are being planted and it shades the road, you're preventing heat from being absorbed by that blacktop and, you know, and the trees are storing carbon. They're doing multiple different things that are improving the health of the planet and the health of the population. And this goes back to what we were talking about with um, racial policies, right? And how if, you know... The, some of the best policies for fixing the nation's problems aren't the ones that you would think. They're things that are much more basic, like providing, you know, providing, yeah, providing access to food and food deserts, providing health care, um, you know, not discriminating based off of um, racial attributes. And Leaving these other some things. green spaces green and, and, and developing the green spaces everywhere, not just right. in privileged locations. Yeah. Right. Because you, uh, that's a, that's a great example, right? You can, you can, Sure, you can exploit all of your oil and cut down all your timber and your economy will be through the roof. And that's great. But guess what? Pretty soon you run out of those things and the country's bankrupt. You know, if you if you only cater to a certain population and that population's shrinking, eventually the country is bankrupt. Right. <laughs> so these biopolitical issues, I think that the role of government in them is looking at the big picture and deciding what's best for the people in its country. And again, the people on the entire planet. If you have things that you know are causing planetary problems, those should be a primary concern of government bodies. And and government that listens to its people often can make some, it's also slow, right? Seemingly mm -hmm. slow. But when a majority of people say X and the representatives say, la, 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 <laughs> we have our own agenda, thank you very much, go away. That's when it falls apart. Yeah, yeah. So I this was, I thought this was a really fun and interesting conversation. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it got too grim. Well, I hope, not. and I'm sure that um <laughs> you know it's it's gonna it's gonna play a role in future conversations as well. But until next time, keep on.